song. That's a good song. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Everybody adjusted to the time change yet? Yeah, that's what I thought. Nobody's adjusted to the stupid, stupid time change. <clears throat> Before I get started, uh, every once in a while, there's a ministry that we like to call part of our Grace Life community that'll be starting up at the end of April. I just wanted to tell you a little about it. It's called... Um, it's going to be led by uh, Marta Hobbs. Uh, she sees it as an opportunity for the women of Grace Life to join and connect. She's going to be doing what they call uh, a holy yoga class. I tried it once. I pulled 11 muscles in 30 seconds, so I'm not doing it again. It's on April 28th. That's a Sunday at 530. It'll be at uh, Pineapple Yoga. It's free. And the idea behind this is it's an opportunity. She, I'm just going to read what she says. Gentle movement with meditation on scripture. This 60-minute practice is a perfect way to bring your body and mind to stillness as you focus on hearing God's word. It's not a fitness class, but rather a moving prayer with a focus on Christ. No prior yoga experience is necessary. Uh, the class is trauma-sensitive. Uh, that means, like, if you've ever seen me in yoga pants, that would be the trauma she's talking about, <laughs> apparently. I don't know. Uh, everything you need will be provided. Come in comfortable attire. We will be sending out an email uh, to the women of Grace Life to let you know more about when and where. It sounds like a really cool way to connect. Um, so uh, you'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. Uh, so thanks. Good catch, Richard. Yeah, don't be, don't be hacking my Facebook account, okay? Just, <clears throat> all right. Um, we're continuing with uh, the week four of this series called Surviving in Egypt, The Life of Joseph. <clears throat> and uh, the last, I don't know if you noticed, but the, I, I titled the first message in this series, Intro to Dysfunction. And these messages in chapter 37 of Genesis are really all about family dysfunction, right? I mean, we've, un we've uncovered some pretty ridiculous Jerry Springer type stuff in Jacob's family. And this is the last week in this initial series on the life of Joseph talking about family dysfunction. I've titled this one, The Family Business. So... When I say family business, I'm not talking about the ways families make money. I'm, when I say family business, I'm more talking about, you know, that's our family business. If you know what I'm saying, like the stuff that our family struggles with. Keep your nose out of my family business, that type of thing. Parents, <clears throat> we kind of live in fear, don't we, of the influence that the world can have on our children. And frankly, and for good reason, we work overtime to protect them from the impacts of the fallen world around us. We attempt to shield them as much as possible, what they watch, the schools we send them to, how we police the internet, who they're hanging out with. We do a really good, thorough job of making sure that our kids aren't exposed to dysfunction. All of this is part of being a good parent and certainly are things that we should do. But let's be honest, sooner or later, no matter how hard you try, your efforts will be in vain and the world will creep into your child's life at some point. Correct? It just will. <clears throat> but here is an unnoticed problem, an unspoken one. The actual most influential depravity in the world on our kids is us, the parents. Even though we love our kids and we never want to cause them detriment or spiritually harm them, Inevitably, we do. <clears throat> the depravity of our family dysfunction is so well masked, it runs so deep, we don't even see its impact till it's too late. We talked about this a little bit last week. The heart of man is deceitful, so much so, who can really know the depths of it? 
So that's kind of the idea that I want to share with you today. We're going to read uh, the last part of Genesis 37. Here's the passage, verses 29 to 36. Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit. Reuben was his oldest brother. And Reuben tore his clothes. Remember what happened? They had sold him uh, into slavery. Reuben tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? You notice he's concerned about how it's going to impact him. I was supposed to look after him, and where is he? <clears throat> then they took Joseph's robe, the one of many colors that his dad had given him, that special robe, and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many, co- they, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father Jacob and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is the son's robe or not. <laughs> of course they know it's his son's robe. And Jacob identified and said, It is my son's robe. Surely a fierce animal has devoured him. He just jumps right to that. It's really strange. So Joseph's, without doubt, torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his, sons, for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But Jacob refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to the grave with my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile... The Midianites had sold him into, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's talk about the history. I want to discuss a little bit here today the evolution of their dysfunction. <clears throat> Starts with jealousy, and each cycle of this jealousy yields more and more of the actual nature that is in their hearts. Remember I told you early on when they were jealous of their brother, they never thought they'd become slave traders, but in fact they did. They never thought they'd even think about killing him, but in fact, they came very close to killing him. But with each reiteration of their depravity, it gets worse and worse. And so they decide to sell him into slavery to get the money. And Reuben, the older brother, returns to discover Joseph isn't there. He's scared and nervous, grieving. He assumes maybe they likely killed Joseph. He's not sure. And his response is, what is going to happen to me now? How am I going to go back to Jacob? What did you guys do to me? How am I going to go back to our dad and say, I I didn't do a good job? This makes me look bad, guys. They probably let him in on the secret. And so those are the cruel brothers that we see. We've discussed them for the last three weeks. But now I want to go even further and talk about how they deceived their father. So they take Joseph's prized coat, the one that they hated the fact that he wore, right? Because he was the favorite son. They dip it in goat's blood and bring it to Jacob. Hey, is this the coat? We just found it and it's got blood. I don't don't know. I mean, is this the right one? Look at the layers of deception here. Let's just count off the layers of deception. They knew it was his coat. It wasn't found. They stole it. And then they killed a goat to dip the coat in blood to make it look like, well, I don't know, whatever Jacob thinks happens. I don't know, Dad, what happened, but we didn't, I mean, we just found this coat and it's got blood all over it. I mean, the layers of deception are pretty ingenious if you think about it. And Jacob doesn't ask any questions. Wait a minute, where did you find this jacket? Come on, this, this doesn't look like human blood. This is goat blood. Are you sure? Show me where you found the jacket. Show me where the rest of the blood is. Show me what's... He doesn't ask any questions. He just simply assumes that Joseph has been torn apart by an animal. 
And he is clueless to the level of dysfunction and deception and treachery that is in the rest of his sons. Maybe he was in denial. I don't know. But it's kind of crazy. The deceptive sons know that Joseph is still around. But instead of saying, they they see their dad suffering, they see him crying, they see him all this stuff, and instead of telling him the the truth, they just watch. They say nothing, even though they have all the words they need to relieve his pain, which is the truth. Dad, our bad. (laughs) We stole the jacket. We threw him in a pit, but don't worry. We didn't kill him. We sold him. Here's the money. Thank goodness. In fact, for years, Jacob and Rachel, Joseph's mother, were probably the only ones in the whole clan who didn't know that Joseph was still alive. All the brothers knew it. Certainly the brothers' moms knew it. Everyone knew it except for Jacob and Rachel. For years, I mean, talk about dysfunction. Everybody in the family knows that Joseph's still alive, but they let the parents think, ah, he's gone. Then I want to talk about the inherited dysfunction. Here's what's so funny about this. Jacob's sons, as bad as they seem, and it's bad, they're merely just continuing the secret family business they learned from watching their father. Let's talk about some of these things. Did you know that... uh, Jacob was really good at deceiving his father. In Genesis 27, there's a story that Isaac, Jacob's father, is about to die, and he can't really see that well, and it's time for him to confer the birthright to his oldest son, Esau, the brother of Jacob. Isaac was, you know, Isaac's favorite was Esau, but Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. And so Rebekah says, look, I want you to get the birthright. So let's come up with this plan. Your son, your dad can't even see. So Jacob, along with his mother, Rebecca, or along with his, his mother, um, Rachel, they scheme to deceive Esau so that he thinks that Jacob is Esau. What he does is he kills a goat. Does that sound familiar? And he uses the fur from a goat and puts it all over himself because apparently Esau was a hairy dude. And he goes into the tent where Isaac is and says, hey, I'm here, I'm I'm, I'm Esau, I'm here to get my birthright. Let me feel you to make sure it is you. Oh, yeah, you're hairy, that's you, Esau. So when his dad touches him, he says, ah, you are Esau, and he gives him the inheritance. Just so you know what the birthright was. The birthright means that you get to have authority in the family when the patriarch dies. You get two-thirds of the money. You get all the responsibility. And in this case, the promise that was conferred on Abraham, then Abraham gave to Isaac. And Isaac now gives it to, instead of Esau, he gives it to Jacob. It's a pretty big deal. Esau's mad at this. Esau just goes into a depression slump. But that's not where it ends. He stole from his brother. He stole that birthright. He deceives his dad. He he, He stole the birthright. He becomes the head of the family. And it leaves Esau Esau with a measly one-third of everything. As well as that covenant promise. But that's not enough for Jacob. He's already done pretty bad, right? I mean, you figure, you know what? I should be happy with the birthright and the two-thirds of the money and all the authority, right? No, he hatches the scheme and he manipulates his brother. 
Two-thirds wasn't enough. He wanted all of it. I'll just read the passage from you. It's from Genesis 25, uh, 29 to 34. Once Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. I need to eat. Jacob said, well, you're hungry? Sell me your birthright. In other words, the other half of the third or the, other, the rest of the third. Sell me your birthright right now. And Esau, apparently he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, you know. <laughs> he falls for it. He goes, well, I'm about to die from hunger anyway. What use is a birthright to me if I'm going to be dead if I can't eat? Surely a third of my wealth or a third of everything that my dad owned and my wealth is worth a bowl of stew. It probably wasn't even good stew. I mean, as a guy, he probably can't cook that good. So Jacob gives Esau bread and the stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. But he leaves the birthright, his one-third that was left, with Jacob. So Jacob gets it all. The last time they saw each other was when Jacob went into the land that had been promised to him because of the birthright. Jacob knew this, and he took advantage of the fact that his brother wasn't very smart. I bet you that Esau, get this, Esau probably never met his nephews. Jake, uh, Joseph, <clears throat> Reuben, Judah, all those guys. I mean, they didn't see each other. I mean, talk about dysfunction. Everybody, you, we can all relate to that, right? We have people in our family that we don't ever see anymore because there's this dysfunction. Do you ever think that Jacob sat down with his sons to tell them about his deceptive ways? Listen, what, listen this is what I did to your uncle. This is why he's not around anymore. Don't do that to each other. Don't do it. But of course he does it. Can we just say, after all we've learned the last four weeks, this is the most messed up family in history? I mean, they are messed up. This is simply Jacob's sons following the family business of deception and debauchery. So that's the history of this passage. Now the spiritual, what God puts up with is just amazing. This stunning amount of patience that God has with his chosen people, it blows me away. First, I want to talk about the burden of free will. Galatians 6, 7 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Look, there are undeniable patterns in our life and in scripture that tell us about our depravity. We can't deny it. I mean, you can, but you're really kidding yourself. And really, you know that you're depraved. <clears throat> Yet often what happens is people use suffering, most of which is from their own consequences, their, air, their own free will, and they use it to attack the character of God. How could God let this happen to me? When he doesn't relieve us from the burden of our own wickedness, somehow we say God's lacking mercy. That's the burden of our free will. We love our free will. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to make my own choices. And then when our choices cause us pain, why would God let this happen? And God's up there, don't you know this is your fault? If I let you have everything you deserve, could you imagine how bad it would be? But then I want you to see what else God does when he puts up with us. There is the blessing of consequences. David by the way, David, uh, for some of you that were with me at, in the garden, we went through a, a series on the life of David. David was not a, a great guy either. And when he was confronted with this sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah, 
He wrote Psalm 51 about confession. And one of the verses in Psalm 51, verse 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have crushed may rejoice. When he talks about bones you have crushed, he says, make me glad that you have taken away my pride and arrogance that made me so full of myself. You have crushed my bones. Make me hear joy that I am enduring the consequences of my dysfunction. Because without the exposure that consequences bring, we would never truly fall in love with God's grace or his mercy. And so we have blessing of consequences that are a result of our dysfunction, and they are gifts that make us fall in love with forgiveness, grace, restoration, redemption. Then I want to talk about the benefits of grace. In Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Somehow, God still uses this ridiculous mess of a dysfunctional family to be the line of Christ from which he is born to save us from our own dysfunction. I mean, if our Savior could be born from this mess of a family to be the family that Christ is born from, don't you think he can overcome your dysfunction? Somehow, what God does in this story with Joseph, particularly his brothers in Genesis 37, he wades through the dysfunction, all the anger, all the bitterness, all the resentment, the dishonesty. He uses this soap opera of a family to save us from our own sin and depravity. And then he uses us in our dysfunction to save others from theirs. It's incredible. It's the concept, maybe you've heard me pray this, God never works because of us, he always works in spite of us. Uh, what he puts up with, with our mess, like, you know, we live inside of it, so we don't realize how bad it is maybe sometimes, and God's going, man, it was a hard work saving those people. All right, so let's talk about the personal. I want to talk about embracing dysfunction. You know, it's, it's easy to shake our heads at Jacob. <laughs> but how embarrassed would we be if our dysfunction was recorded in the Bible like this one? It's not like there's like dozens of chapters of their dysfunction recorded in the Bible. Can you imagine like how embarrassed we would be if that was in there and people were studying it and writing sermons about it a thousand years from now? Up in heaven, really, God, you have to let that be in there? <laughs> How would we stand up to the scrutiny of our family business in Scripture for all to read about and to learn from? Let me ask this question. How different could it have been if Jacob lived in the light and revealed to his sons his desperate need for grace? What if... When his sons were younger, before they got older and really dysfunctional, he had called them all together and said, everyone gather around. Let me tell you stories of how badly our family needs grace. Guys, listen, come here. We're having dinner tonight. Come, yeah, come in. No, no, no. Put the, put the game down. Everybody sit. I've gathered you all here tonight to tell you this. We are some messed up people. Here's what I did to Isaac, my dad, your granddad. Here's what I did to my brother Esau. This is why he's not here anymore. This is why you don't know his kids. This is why we don't have family reunions, because I stole everything from him. 
Yes, he was an idiot, but I shouldn't have taken advantage. <laughs> Can you imagine how different it would have been had Jacob just sat down, don't treat your brothers the way I treated mine? What would it take for us to be this vulnerable and open? Why can't we, if we're honest, just admit, yep, we're just like Jacob and his sons. We are. We all have our dysfunction. Every person, every family, every church, and denying it just perpetuates its negative consequences. Year after year after year. Generation after generation. We hide from our dysfunction for years living a lie. Addiction, manipulation, unresolved conflict, abuse, cover-up, perfectionism, legalism, poor communication, whatever it is. We live with it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to discuss it. We want to hide it. But we hear from 1 John, we talked about this in our study of uh, uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John we just completed. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we fail to live in the light of our dysfunction, here's what happens, church. We are amplifying its impact on the ones we love most. But there is some sort of supernatural comfort in living in the light of who we really are. It's not so we can get comfortable with it and we just joke about it. Oh, that's me. You know, I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. I'm a cheat. That's, that's who I am. I'm not talking about living in the light that way. I'm talking about when we live in the light of who we are and our need for mercy, it brings supernatural comfort. The reality of our need for redemption driving us to love and dependence on our Savior Jesus, who was born from this ridiculously sinful family. You know, I think this is one of the reasons why I love Monday nights at Grace Life Recovery so much. There's no veil over their dysfunction. Because people in recovery, listen carefully, people in recovery know their lives depend on transparency and vulnerability and relationships that are real. What it really does is remind us about how desperately we need grace. So I wrote this from my journal. I put this in my journal <clears throat> when I was studying uh, the life of Joseph in my own personal devotions. Realizing how much dysfunction I foster and its effects on those I love most leaves no confidence in my personal, personal righteousness or public spirituality. I want a new family tradition that lives in the light and the brokenness that brings healing. That's the only hope to rescue people from the consequences of my dysfunctional family business. I wrote that probably when I was 28. I haven't done a great job all the time. But I'm constantly reminded that I have a life full of dysfunction. <clears throat> but here's what happens when we suppress, when we deny 
When we refuse to deal with the truth of our dysfunction, we are hindered, get this, we are hindered from truly enjoying grace to its fullest extent. How great would it be if we were set free from hidden depravity, lurking under the surface, ready to spring its ugly consequences on other people, Instead, we transferred it into brokenness, vulnerability, transparency, openness, living in the light of mercy and grace. How much better would that be? Look, a functional family isn't a sin-free family. Those do not exist. Don't pretend like you think that your family can be any better than anyone else's. Oh, on the surface, you probably are. Maybe you've gotten really good at hiding what's going on. But there is no such thing as a family without baggage. A functional family isn't sin-free. A functional family is the one that freely admits that from the top down, it is in desperate need of grace. This is what we see in the example of Jacob's clan. There is no perfect family, yet somehow, as dysfunction is revealed, God still chooses to use them in a way that we still benefit from today. So the last thing I want to share with you, dysfunction doesn't scare God. It scares your pastor. <laughs> but he evidently loves dysfunctional families. <laughs> Apparently, right? I mean, Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and Joseph, all these people, David, Solomon, they're all absolute total disasters. And he loves them anyway. So while this sermon maybe has brought to light some things in your life that make you uncomfortable, have peace of knowing this, guys. God loves people just like you. And he uses people just like us. Heavenly Dad, help us to live in the light of who we really are so that we can run to grace and mercy. Lord, we don't want to be prisoners of guilt. We don't want to be prisoners of anything like that. We want to have transparency with you because we need redemption. Help us to be open about it. And God, we're so thankful that in this example of Jacob and his family, that for whatever reason, you put up with a ton and you love dysfunctional people. Help us to be those who are in tune with our dysfunction in a way that brings a smile to your face as you impart grace to 